the story of generations of people who felt the lash of bondage, the shame of servitude, the sting of segregation, but who kept on striving and hoping and doing what needed to be done so that today I wake up every morning in a house that was built by slaves. And, and I watch my daughters, two beautiful, intelligent black young women, playing with their dogs on the White House lawn. That was Michelle Obama during the 2016 Democratic National Convention, offering a stark reminder that since 1619, black Americans' tireless labor has built our nation from the ground up. Welcome to Hall Pass, the podcast. I'm Jamal Andrus, and today's episode is White House Black Hands. Some of the most prominent landmarks to represent democracy and equality in the land of the free were literally built off the backs of enslaved Black Americans. And to help guide us through this conversation, we have Howard's own Dr. Clarence Usain, who wrote the Black history of the White House. And as we watch another Black family enter this hollow ground, we want to get a clear look at what that really means. Stick with us. My guest for episode five, Professor Clarence Lusane. Let's get into um, your writing, the book, The Black History of the White House. I think it's important to mention that she mentioned in a, a very important speech that this was, uh, you know, she wakes up in a house that was built by slaves and, and, and you were part of documenting that history in a very real way. And, you know, according to you, putting out one of the most complete works at the very least about that history. So, you know, I think that's, I think that's really important. Thank you. Growing up, the idea that black people built the White House, it just felt like one of those things that I knew to be true, but it never looked up. I, it felt like one of those things that people said, whether it be, you know, in the barbershop or just over dinner, but I hadn't necessarily confirmed it. And, and I guess, you know, what inspired you to look into this, inspired you to write this book? Uh, and, and I guess also, was there any pushback as you sort of push forward in this, in this writing? Uh, yeah, so when uh, Barack Obama ran, uh, announced that he was running, it, uh, you know, excited people. Uh, it was clear his, his candidacy was going to be uh, different from that of Jesse Jackson uh, and, you know, that perhaps he could be successful. And so as the campaign evolved, uh, I received a couple of requests from publishers to write a book about Obama. And I said no, because everybody was writing books about Obama, right? I think Obama might have the, the second largest number of books about him uh, after Lincoln. But as I thought about it, I said, well, you know, I really actually have not seen anything that talked about the history of Black people in the White House. Uh, clearly, it was more than, you know, Obama's not going to be the first Black person walking that door, right? So what does that history look like and how uh, has racism kind of existed historically through these presidencies? And so initially, I was going to just write about, you know, the presidents and their views on race and how black people sort of resisted. But as I began to do the research, uh, all of these stories popped up of individuals who we were never taught about uh, 
people who were enslaved to George Washington to escape, or enslaved to uh, Madison, or black people who were essentially counselors to the president. Uh, you know, all of these individuals that there was very little written about. Uh, so I decided, you know, the book would take a very different tone. And the building of the White House itself in DC, uh, like you, I sort of had an intuition that, you know, you had the slavery period and, you know, basically people who were enslaved built all of the major buildings up and down the, the you know, from courthouses to libraries to universities. So it kind of made sense, but I hadn't really thought about it. And there was a little bit written about it, but not a lot. Uh, but there was a lot in the archives, in the Library of Congress, and you know, I found old invoices, and you know, there were you know all kinds of uh, materials. And so, basically, the story emerges that George Washington wanted to actually not have black people build it. He wanted to it be to be built kind of without slave labor. Um, they put out a call, but basically, nobody wanted to do it. You know, this was hard work. Uh, where, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., and where, you know, the whole city was a jungle. You know, it was, wasn't like it was building from a city that already existed. Uh, Virginia and Maryland ceded about 10 acres uh, to the federal government, and given the task that, uh, ahead of them, they knew it was going to take 10 years, right? This was not going to be an easy uh, deal. You know, they didn't have bulldozers, and, you know, they didn't have anything modern. Uh, this was all handwork, hard labor. And so uh, they estimated correctly that it was going to take about 10 years, uh, which it did from 1790 to 1800. And slave labor was critical in that. There was free Black labor that was also involved, but uh, Black slave labor from manual labor. Uh, you had to cut down trees. You had to drag those trees away. You had to get rid of all the dead carcasses. You had to bring stone. You know, it was just massive labor. Uh, but there was also skilled labor. Uh, you needed carpenters, you needed plasterers, uh, you needed brick makers. Uh, and apparently black women, black enslaved women, this was one of the specific areas where um, they were targeted. So again, I knew none of this, you know, and I had studied black history for decades. And uh, so, you know, I wrote all of that up just to talk about the beginning of, you know, how the, the country uh, started uh, relevant now is not only the that Black people built the White House, Black people built the Capitol, right? So when you uh, you know look at when you look at this invasion of the Capitol by these white nationalists, uh, it also was clashing into that history uh, that is kind of unknown. Uh, about uh, seven eight years ago, uh, there were two plaques that were put up in the Capitol rotunda to acknowledge the building of the Capitol by Black people, by enslaved labor. Uh, so one leads to the House side, one leads to the Chamber side. So if you go and you read these plaques, you kind of have a sense. Uh, there's nothing like that in the White House. When you see that the plaque that's in the Capitol um, and, and read that history about this incredible craftsmanship that had to go come into building the White House um, and the fact that the majority of those folks were Black, I guess I wonder, do you feel a pride from that or, or, or you know, some sort of sadness? Because at, at one, at, on the one hand, that credit has not been given and you decades later had to sort of give these people their just due. But the fact remains that that is a 
creation of, you know, uh, of black skill and black craftsmanship. So I wonder where you, where that sits in your mind. Yeah, so I am mixed, mixed on it. Uh, I think probably for me, the most important thing is just kind of an acknowledgement that this happened and that uh, there should be a recognition that what uh, embodied this country's history manifests itself in these uh, icons like the White House and the Capitol and, and, and uh, kind of other structures. And so, I mean, the reality is that people were enslaved. You know, there's kind of no way to kind of gloss over and sort of you know, make that a happy experience. Uh, but even in the kind of the midst of all of that, uh, uh, the role of black people in this country's history is thoroughly embedded, uh, even though there's an uh, effort to wipe that history out and kind of ignore it. And, you know, I feel as a scholar, uh, one of the things I, you know, want to fight for is that there is no um, ignoring that. Uh, and, you know, I say this now because as uh, we're moving forward, you hear all of these Republicans saying that they want unity. What they really want is amnesia. You know, they want us to forget the last four years, forget the last 50 years, forget the last 400 years, and uh, we just can't let that happen. Yeah, yeah, you know, you mentioned that amnesia and it leads me to a, a, a fairly simple question. Why do you think this sort of thing is left out of so many history books? Why do you think it is that these sorts of things, I mean, is it just because of that, that American uh, uh, exceptionalism? I, I guess, what do you think is the reason why these things are not written down and taught? Uh, so I think there are multiple reasons. One is certainly uh, ignorance that people just don't know. You know, even those of us who study are constantly surprised by finding this stuff out. Uh, but it's also, I would argue, directly tied to power. So whose story is told is going to be the story of you know, justifying people's position where they're at in history. So you know, it does not benefit you to say that the entire history of this country was based on the enslavement of, you know, people of color and, and you know, enslaving Black people and massacring the indigenous population. And, you know, so you don't want that to be kind of the dominant, although true, uh, narrative. So you build counter narratives. And so that's where our fight is uh, over this history. And so, again, we have to challenge this wherever we kind of encounter it. Uh, you know, and push so that, you know, a more truer and genuine understanding of uh, what actually happened in history is really told. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, you got to meet a personal favorite of mine, the forever first lady, uh, Michelle Obama, uh, who looks, looked fabulous during the inauguration. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but that was at least a third of the talks and texts that I received afterward was right. about Michelle Obama's outfit. I, you had a chance to meet her uh, after I believe your book was published. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that experience. So she had a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, there's a group of young women that she mentored. And so uh, her office asked me to uh, come and give a presentation to these young women. Uh, wasn't a big flashy thing. It wasn't, you know, calling the press or anything like that. It was just a very, you know, me talking to them about the book in the uh, theater where the family watched movies, right? Uh, so it was that. And, uh, and I actually um, wrote her the 
I did a couple of presentations at the White House. Her staff wanted a special autograph copy for her of the book. So I, you know, gave her, you know, sent her a special autograph copy for the book. So I think, you know, so I, I'm assuming she read it, you know, and when she talked about, you know, growing up in the, you know, waking up every day with the you know, house built by slaves, you know, in part was, you know, maybe because she read something that I wrote. This has been one of the most hectic weeks. I don't think it's hyperbole to say one of the most hectic weeks in America's democracy bar none, period. And as someone who is sort of intimately familiar with American history, uh, specifically the history of the White House, specifically the history of the Capitol, what was it like watching an insurrection followed by an impeachment, followed by an inauguration? I, you know, a lot of people have expressed pride seeing that democracy sort of held up against this. But at the same time, at least for me, um, there was some trepidation there as well. You know, the idea that these folks could walks waltz into the Capitol and and you know not receive the kind of punishment that protesters on the streets across the country have received uh throughout the the summer and you know all the way back no you 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 hit a very critical point uh there's so many things to say about this uh just in terms of the comparison so not only how Black Lives Matter activists and other protesters have, were treated just in the last year, just in 2020. But you also compare that to the white uh, protests that happened in 2020. So not just what happened with the white people at the Capitol, but the white people who protested in Michigan, they protested in a number of states with guns, spitting on the police, cursing them out, and not a single one of those individuals was seriously harmed, so certainly none of them were killed, right? So just that, just in the last year, and you know, again, as you point out, there's a long, long history, but then we get to January and you know, everyone sort of breathed a sigh of relief that we made through 2020, one of the worst years in, in our lives. And probably in the first month, there's been more intensity than all of 2020. As you say, the three eyes: insurrection, inauguration, and impeachment. But what we saw was that this white insurrection, it really was a coup. This was an effort at stealing the government unfolded, but they've been coming. You know, they were, you know, reacting to, you know, going all the way back to Charlottesville, uh, but certainly as the Black Lives Matter uh, movement grew around the country and then directly confronted uh, the former president across from the White House. These white supremacists, the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys, the Oath Keepers are uh, coming to the city. But given all of that, no one could ever conceive that they would launch a basically successful incursion into the Capitol. You know, it would have been uh, outrageous enough if it was spontaneous, if it was just Trump incited the crowd, the crowd got riled up and went and invaded the Capitol. But there's increasing evidence that this was a very conscious, deliberate, well-planned operation that involved thousands and very likely included inside support, both from the Capitol Police and from members of Congress and linked to the White House. There's a very popular picture that came out of the insurrection of a white guy carrying a Confederate flag through the Capitol. 
And everyone sort of noted that, you know, that was outrageous. And there were a lot of stories about how this was the first time that you saw the Confederate flag being carried through uh, the Capitol, which is generally true. There have been members, particularly Southern members and, and some of the white nationalist members uh, who have had Confederate flags in their offices. Uh, but I want to talk about that image because if you look to the left of the image, there's a portrait on the wall of uh, John Calhoun. Uh, who was one of the leading theorists uh, that ultimately led to the Civil War back in the 1840s uh, and 1850s. He died before the Civil War, but he argued for defending slavery and that if the federal government did not, then uh, the South should consider secession. Uh, he had been the vice president for John uh, Quincy Adams and then the vice president for Andrew Jackson. If you look to the right of the uh, person carrying the flag, there's another picture and that's Charles Sumner. Charles Sumner was the leading abolitionist in Congress in the 1850s, 1860s. He gave a very famous speech in 19, uh, 1854 uh, where he uh, criticized the institution of slavery. Shortly after that, he was nearly beaten to death by another member of Congress, uh, Representative Preston Brooks from South Carolina uh, with his cane. He found uh, Senator uh, Sumner on the floor of the Senate and just began to beat him. And he beat him until the cane actually broke. And it took uh, Sumner three years to recover before he actually came back, uh, was able to come back to, uh, to Congress. But he was key in pushing for uh, the end of slavery. And then he was key in the institutional uh, and creation of reconstruction. And then if you look to his right, there's a bust and it's a bust of Richard Nixon. And Nixon's role in all of this was that Nixon was the, it was the Nixon administration that instituted the uh, Southern strategy, which was the effort by the Republican party to woo disaffected whites in the South who were unhappy with the civil rights movement and particularly the Democratic Party outside of the South that was pushing for civil rights legislation. So that one picture kind of tells all those stories. You know, it's interesting the idea that you've never had a Confederate flag necessarily flown inside the Capitol, but all these representations of, of, of that ideology are just kind of hanging around on the walls. Oh, and this is the other thing too. So last summer, as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests, the House of Representatives voted to get rid of all of the Confederate symbols, the busts and the statues and all of that, but the Senate did not. So that's why all of that stuff was actually is still there because as you point out, you know, they, you know, we still are celebrating the Confederacy, uh, even though it was a treasonous, uh, you know, operation to, to overthrow the country. And again, this is a long history uh, that we're seeing of where white supremacy uh, has never been eradicated from the country. And at every moment where African-Americans and other people of color uh, tried to make progress, uh, we get these surges. And so I think that's where we're at right now. Professor Lusain, Dr. Lusain, I, I appreciate you taking some time and speaking with me. Thank you, Brother Jamal. Well, between a riot at the Capitol, ongoing coronavirus, and Queen Kamala entering the White House, it doesn't look like things are slowing down any in 2021. 
But don't worry, we'll be here every step of the way to break down new history, old history, and everything in between. If you enjoyed today's chat, tell a friend to tell a friend to check us out. Hit us up at BAPS Productions or at Clash Productions if you have a topic you want to hear about. And as always, we're available on SoundCloud and Apple Music. I'm Jamal Andrus, and this is Hall Pass the Podcast.